Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 11 a.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. Well, good morning, church. And how awesome was that to see all those people be baptized this morning? If you are a guest with us, I just want to welcome you to our church. My name is Pete. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are so thankful that you've joined us um, for just an awesome morning celebration coming off of Easter. Just a lot to be thankful for. Um, Those songs are designed to not only be a response to who God is today, right now, presently in our lives, but to also kind of prepare our hearts to hear from God's word. And that's what we're going to do right now. And uh, we're going to be in the book of Hebrews again this morning. So if you have a copy of God's word, I want to invite you to join me in the book of Hebrews chapter 13, the final chapter of this amazing New Testament book. And I know that we do have a number of people this morning who perhaps, or this is your first week you're here because you wanted to support someone getting baptized, or maybe it's just you're looking for a new church. We're glad that you're here. And I want to kind of just kind of reset where we've been because we've been studying the book of Hebrews for for a while now here at Salem Heights Church. But I think I can kind of sum it up for you and kind of set up the morning of where we're headed. This book has been designed to try to communicate to a group of people that Christ is better than everything. That Jesus is supreme. He's superior. The original audience of this book was a group of Jewish people who had placed their faith in the gospel, the same gospel that these individuals placed their faith in that they were professing to you this morning as they got baptized. The the gospel, the good news that Jesus had come as the savior of the world, not just the world in that present time, but the savior of all time, that he came to live a perfect life that not a single human being could ever live because he was fully God and fully man and that he lived a perfect life, which allowed him to actually die for the sins of somebody else. Because if if I needed to die, I have sins of my own to pay for. But because he had no sins of his own to pay for, he could die for our sins. And he died for all of the sins that would ever happen, all that had happened since the Garden of Eden, all that were happening in that day as he was being unjustly crucified And all that would happen until he returns, he paid for them in those moments on the cross. And last week we celebrated a high day of the year where we just really focus on the fact that Christ didn't stay dead and stay in a tomb, that he rose again because he was not just a man, he was God in the flesh. And so these people had believed in the gospel for their salvation, but their faith in Christ caused them to suffer. And that's where this book is super relatable today because to follow Christ today in our world is difficult. We face opposition in a world that is broken by sin and is in rebellion against God's word, who looks at God's word as oppressive and outdated and and they don't wanna live by what God has said and they don't wanna accept what God has offered. And so to follow Christ and say, well, we want to follow Christ and we believe that he is better, that he is supreme, that he is superior, is gonna cause us to face similar opposition today from the world. But these people not only faced opposition from the world, they also faced opposition from their family and friends because they were walking away from a lifetime of of tradition and belief to, to follow Christ. And anytime we follow Christ and we face that kind of opposition, it is natural, it is normal, it should be expected that there's gonna be moments where we doubt it, is it worth it? And so this whole book has been written to to make a clear and convincing case that what they place their faith in to become saved is worthy of their continued faith. That Christ has not 
faltered, he hasn't wavered, and that they can continue to, to place their faith in him, not just for salvation, but they could put the, the burdens that they're facing for following Christ completely on him, and he would actually be able to help them endure. He would carry them through across the finish line. And that's the same thing that we need to hear today. Christ is worthy of our faith. And the life that Christ offers us is a better life than anything this world could provide. And what he has done in this letter, he's also said all those old systems and traditions that God had put in place, they offered certain promises, they offered certain kind of guardrails and guidance, but they were never meant to be the final solution. And what Christ has come to provide for us through his death, burial, and resurrection is so much better. So remain faithful. And so this letter has been designed to be read by a group of believers and even unbelievers to read it and to consider, is Christ worthy of my faith? He is. Is Christ worthy of my continued enduring faith? He is. And this letter has been designed to inspire us to remain faithful to Christ, to remain faithful to the gospel and remain faithful to the church. Now, as we get into chapter 13, we're gonna notice a, a shift in the tone because he's been spending this whole time kind of outlining what commentators call the doctrine of this faith. And now he's gonna move into, in this final chapter, the duty. Sometimes uh, the, some commentaries have said he's moved from the uh, response, revelation of what he said to the responsibilities that you and I now have. He's moved from the vertical, like how we should view God to now how should that, that faith in God impact the way we live here with each other. Uh, this past weekend, my wife and I uh, took just a real quick trip out of town and we're kind of in a life stage where we can leave our kids at home, which is an amazing stage. And for all you young families, it's coming. You'll get to that point. Uh, but you know, no babysitters, no grandparents just say, please don't burn down the house. But when we left, we do what we would normally do. We talk to our kids, we give them all kinds of reminders. Right? Because that's what responsible parents do. Hey, remember to dot, 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 or be sure to dot, 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 or, or you all need to dot, dot, dot. When we go over these last minute reminders right before we're about to leave, these are not new laws. These are not new rules that they've never heard before. They're reminders of how they should act appropriately when we're gone. That's the same thing that we're seeing here happening in chapter 13, because we're gonna read just the first six verses and it's going to be listing out five or six different things that he's calling them to remember. And they're kind of in rapid fire succession. But remember, he spent the whole letter saying, hey, I'm not trying to point you to a new set of commandments. Those old commandments, they served a purpose in time, but Christ has come and he's fulfilled those commandments and now we live in him, not longer under law, but under grace and grace is better than the law, amen? amen? And so now he's not finishing the letter going, and so here's your new commandments. What he's doing is he's saying, hey, this is what it looks like to have enduring faith. I'm calling you to run a race with endurance. I'm calling you to fix your eyes on Jesus, to not get distracted by perilous pursuits. And now I wanna give you some really practical examples of what that will look like if you will do that. And so the point of this chapter, the point of this passage, passage this morning is not to kind of give us a new set of commandments to live out, but is to provide some examples of what enduring, maturing faith looks like when we live it out in obedience. And so with that, let's turn our attention to the first six verses of Hebrews chapter 13. If you're able, would you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word together and we'll read our text for the morning. If you're ready to hear from the word of the Lord, say ready. This is the word of the Lord. Let brotherly love 
continue. Don't neglect to show hospitality, for by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. Remember those in prison, as though you were in prison with them, and the mistreated, as though you yourselves were suffering bodily. Marriage is to be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept undefiled, because God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. Therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? You may be seated. Father God, as we just take a few moments here to turn our attention to these examples, to this, this passage in Hebrews, God, would you Use your Holy Spirit to give us understanding of this text. And would you use your Holy Spirit to to take the words that are coming out of me and and, and use them for your glory, to to stir our affections for you, to to cause us to be challenged and convicted, God. Would you just allow your word to minister to each of our hearts this morning? I pray this in your son's name. Amen. What we see here in these first six verses of Hebrews 13 are some hallmarks of enduring and maturing faith. Endurance and maturity. Those are the things that we should be striving for, to endure, to remain faithful to Christ and to be maturing along the, the, the way. And so a hallmark is just distinctive features. When you look at someone who has enduring faith or has maturing faith, there's gonna be things that you notice about their lives that are gonna be completely counter-cultural. They're gonna stand out against the backdrop of a dark and broken world. That is hopefully the desire for all of us, that we're living for Christ in such a way that our life just looks different, not because we are significant or special, but because Christ is doing a a miraculous supernatural work in our lives. People should notice a difference. And so these hallmarks are just distinctive features that we see here. And I think that's what these, these things that we see here in these first six verses are. They're just like, these are the different kind of markers that are gonna stand out. I think of Hallmarks, I think of Traeger grills. If you have a barbecue or if you've ever had meat that was cooked on a Traeger, Traegers have a distinct smell and flavor and taste. They're kind of, you just know, oh, that's been Traegered. I've heard guys actually say that. Some people say that as a good thing. Some people say that as a negative thing, but it's distinct. The author here is providing a few examples of Hallmarks that can be kind of a good litmus test for us, like examining our own lives and going, are these things true of myself? And these were all super countercultural as he talks about hospitality towards people. That wasn't culturally like the norm. Or when he says to, to remember those who are in prison, that, that wasn't something that you maybe did. Or when it talks about the views of marriage, honoring marriage, marriage wasn't honored in this culture. And the idea of keeping uh, the marriage bed undefiled and pure was, was definitely not something that they would have seen culturally. And had that started to kind of leak into some of their groups or this pursuit of money and saying, don't be a lover of money, be satisfied with what you have. Again, these were all countercultural back in this day. But as I read that list, I'm like, that is relevant today. Now, each one of these examples, these hallmarks could be its own message. And, and so this morning, I just wanna talk about the first one, brotherly love, because that's the first one that he gives. And, and I think it really kind of encapsulates the rest of them, that the rest of these examples, these hallmarks kind of flow out of love. But I started to ask myself a question, like why does he say this? He's just gotten done in chapter 12, talking about running the race with endurance to not fall away into perilous pursuits, you know, chasing after things that don't lead towards Christ. 
And then he talks about how we've been given an inheritance, a kingdom that's coming that we're going to be a part of that is unshakable. There's nothing that can happen here on earth that can take away or rob or diminish what is waiting for us in heaven. And then he calls us to serve now God. This God who's an all-consuming fire. And then when he gives the first example of how we can do that, he says, let brotherly love continue. Well, perhaps the reason he starts with brotherly love is because he's already kind of expressed a concern that these people, because of the persecution and the difficulty of just following Jesus, might start to kind of pull away from the church, might start kind of pulling away from that group of people who are saying, we're following Christ. If you remember back in chapter 10, he, he warns us, he says, don't neglect the gathering together as believers, as some have done. Don't fall away from that fellowship coming together. But I think he's also highlighting a bigger idea. And that is this, finishing faith is fortified by fellowship with the family of God. Finishing faith. In chapter 12, he uses this illustration of a race and it says that we're all running a race. And the race that is laid out before us is, is, is gonna have unique challenges and difficulties. It's gonna require endurance. It's not a sprint, it's more of a marathon. And he's calling us to finish that race, to run it with the intention of saying, I wanna run, I wanna finish that race. I wanna stand before the Lord one day and I wanna hear him say what we see here in scripture, well done, my good and faithful servant. And so finishing faith, that ability to, to endure, to, to not fall away into secondary loves, to not pursue perilous pursuits, to not be tricked to think that there's something greater than Christ. Finishing faith is fortified by fellowship with the family of God. And the reason I think this is so important, why he starts with this here in verse one of chapter 13, is because the race that lies before us is hard. And the support of our spiritual siblings, the spiritual family of God that we now have because of our faith in Christ is important and of great value. If you wanna finish well, he's saying, don't try to run this race alone. So I wanna consider just three questions this morning to maybe help us understand this idea of brotherly love because it's, it's something that we're kind of familiar with, the word itself, where it comes from, we're gonna talk a little bit about, but I just wanna look at three questions that kind of help us understand that this is, an important thing because this is actually, if you look at in the, in the original language, this sentence here, this very first sentence, let brotherly love continue is actually the Greek words used are a command. It's an imperative. This is something that we don't have an option to choose, but that we are to be committed to this as followers of Christ. So the first question is this, what is brotherly love? There's been so much said about the different words in the Greek that are translated love in our English language and in our English Bibles. And it's always important to kind of understand when we read the word love in our Bible, what form of the Greek word was used because each of those words is a little bit different. And so there's been much said about love, but the word here in, in verse one is the word Philadelphia which we're familiar with because of that city, which is known as the city of brotherly love. That's one of the things that kind of helps us give us context, but it doesn't start with that city. It's a word that goes back, this idea of loving our brothers or loving those dear to us. There's so many different definitions to try to define what brotherly love is, but I found one that I, I, I kind of resonated with the most. I wanna share it with you is that brotherly love is a friendship type love manifested in a living and growing relationship between Two friends. What I love about this definition is first is that I highlight this idea that Philadelphia or this brotherly love is a friendship love, which tells us that it's not just needing to be biological. 
It's just like I show this kind of love to those who are bloodline. I can show it to not just my biological family, but to my spiritual family. And I love how this definition also highlights the fact that brotherly love is a living and growing love. It cannot be demanded, even though it's commanded here. The command here is for us to be committed to putting ourselves into the context in which this will be developed in us and come out through us for the mutual edification of the body. But we can't demand it. It has to be grown slowly through the context of fellowship. And so he's saying, be committed to this. One author put it like this, this type of love for another emanates chiefly from one's heart, the emotions and will. Whereas agapo or agape love is a selfless love that originates from the head as a choice one makes independent of the loveliness or unloveliness of the recipient. Oftentimes, there's, when we talk about love as Christians, if you've been in church or you've kind of studied this, our minds often drift to thinking about agape because this is just an amazing, awesome form of love. It's a, a love that first was shown to us by God. Because agape love is this idea of this unconditional love. And I love how that, that quote says it's an independent love. It's independent of the loveliness of the, the object which is going to receive that love or it's unloveliness. It's, it's really not based on who they are. It's, it's motivated from the person who's giving it. And this is what the Bible tells us Jesus Christ did for you and for me. He sees you. He saw you in your worst possible state. And he pursued you. I don't know if you've ever had a disagreement with someone where you're like, I just have to get out of their presence because just their presence annoys me. Christ saw you, he sees you in the mess, entrapped by your sin, struggling with your addictions knowing that you continue to make promises that you don't keep, knowing all of that when he went to the cross, knowing everything that had been done and everything that will be done, he went to the cross with joy and he pursued us. That's agape. And so when we think about agape, we're like, oh man, that is like the superior love. But what I want us to understand is that, and this has been one of the things that's been so cool about this study for me this week in preparation for this morning is that phileo is not a second best love. We think of agape being the supreme form of love, but phileo is not a less genuine form of love. In fact, in the Bible, throughout the New Testament, we see the scriptures describe both God the Father and God the Son showing phileo, this brotherly love, this affection, this I just want to be near this person. I desire to be around them out of the emotions and will. We see God demonstrating this towards the Son and the Son towards the Father and God the Father and God the Son towards us. And then he calls us to show it towards one another and he calls for us to show it towards him. So I think he says, let brotherly love continue because this is a significant love. To love others with a brotherly love is to love like Christ. So that's what brotherly love is. It's a friendship love that, that is growing and developing. That's rooted out of the heart, not just out of the head. I desire to be around you. I want, I, I, there's something about, we have a mutual bond. And for us as believers, that thing that draws us together should be Christ in us, the hope of glory. So the second question then is, why is this commanded? You get, why you're commanding me to love? Now we kind of get that with agape because it's like, it doesn't have to do with them. You just love them. 
And that's where we can love our enemies. But he's also calling us, he's commanding us to love each other, the, the body of Christ, with this brotherly love. And I think there's three reasons why he is commanding us. He's saying, hey, get back over here. This is where you need to be. If you're going to have finishing faith, enduring faith, you got to start with this kind of love. It's because it is challenging. It's sanctifying and it's glorifying. The first reason that he commands it is because brotherly love is challenging. It's hard. Why? Because our diversity makes brotherly love difficult. I wish that you could see what I'm seeing right now. I see a room full of amazing people. And I know so many of your stories, but there is nothing that would bring this group of people together to sit arm in arm and worship God together outside of Christ. There might be pockets of people who are like, well, we go to the same schools or we live in the same neighborhoods. Or we have the same interests. But ultimately, the thing that brings us together is Christ. But that diversity is what also annoys us with each other. <laughs> it is so hard to pursue this. I love what one author said. This is what we're supposed to have for each other in the church. Don't react by saying, I can't do that. There are too many weirdos and goofballs and emotional misfits in the church. Then listen to this. This was like, oh, this is so convicting. Since when are the commands of God supposed to be doable in our own strength? With man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. He's commanding us because it's difficult. But the good news of scripture is he'll actually help develop brotherly love amongst us if we will pursue it. He'll actually allow us to show grace to one another, to not be irritated by one another, to actually come to appreciate the differences of each other if we'll pursue it. And we're commanded to pursue it. But the second reason why I think he's commanding it is because it's important, it's sanctifying. It is necessary for us. He didn't just save us and say, okay, just walk independently now from the rest of the world, even your family, and just walk with me. He says, yes, this is going to be now the primary relationship, you and me, but I'm going to actually place you into a spiritual family. I'm going to invite you, and now I'm commanding you to actually live with one another and to serve one another. Why? Because there's part of the, what's called sanctification, which means to set apart, or to, to, to kind of make us different. This transformation process that God wants to do in your heart, one of the instruments that he's going to use to strip you of selfishness and strip you of pride and strip you from making the most important thing, your career and your friends and your emotional needs, to strip all that away, he's gonna say, I'm gonna place you within the context of a family where I'm gonna say your number one priority is to serve them, to make their best interest more important than yours. That's hard, but it's so necessary if we're going to become more like Christ. If we're going to actually be rid ourselves of pride, rid ourselves of selfishness that, you know, in the moment it's like, this is what's going to make me happy, but it just rips us apart and destroys and wears at us. He's saying, let me put you in an environment that, yeah, it's going to be refining and it's going to be hard, but if you will stay in it and you will pursue it and you will serve one another and care for one another and show this brotherly love for one another, it actually is going to make you look more like the sun. He commands it because it's challenging, it's sanctifying, but ultimately I think he's commanding us to let brotherly love continue amongst the church and for us to have a part in that because it's glorifying. And this is important. To glorify means to raise something up. What is brotherly love glorifying? It's glorifying Christ. 
Look what God did. He brought this messed up, imperfect group of people together with all their jagged edges and he's brought them together and he's made something beautiful, something of value. Brotherly love can be a powerful testimony to our community and beyond. It shows what only God can do, taking all these imperfect individuals and bringing them together to make something beautiful. In the city of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, there is this place called the Magic Gardens. And when you walk through it, it just looks like maybe it's ruins or the slums, but actually it was a piece of undeveloped land that an artist kind of inhabited and began to make art. What's interesting about this art is that it's, it's a mosaic, echo-minded spectacle is how it's described, where this artist took tiles and bottles, bicycle wheels, mirrors, all this kind of stuff. And he, he worked it together to make this over just this multiple blocks and multiple stories. And, and the thing is that all of this, and this is just one little spot of it. I mean, it's this huge space. He took all these different, basically useless parts, garbage, and he formed them together to create something artistic that actually tells the story of himself. It's in, it's, it tells the story of things he's experienced as he's traveled the world. You know what God does in the church? He takes all of us as individuals that are not perfectly shaped. We got jagged edges. We've got parts that are kind of crumbling away. And yet God in his infinite wisdom, he takes us all together and, and he begins to weave this beautiful mosaic together. And he begins to make something so beautiful that the world goes, how could anybody do anything with that material and make it useful and beautiful and, and something that inspires worship? That's what God does when we pursue brotherly love. When he does this, the church can be a powerful testimony because the church will tell a greater story, not because of the works that we've done, but what he is doing in us to bring us together as his church. And you have a part in that. You have a part in that. For some of us, we probably go, well, of course I do. I'm a pretty significant piece of the puzzle. But I think in, the, in our heart of hearts, we kind of really, we forget sometimes that I actually, I'm just a little, little piece that feels a lot of times out of place. But yet, if I let God place me and use me, I, I become something, I, I become a part of something much bigger that ultimately is for his glory and my good. But will I let him determine where that's at? Or am I going to try to make my own art, make my own kingdom? You might have noticed that I said that the church being woven together as this beautiful mosaic by the Lord can be a powerful testimony because sometimes that's not the case. One author put it like this, sadly, this is not always witnessed in our relationships with other believers. All too often, we tend to treat other believers with everything from sinful partiality and favoritism to bitter coldness and, and other things. Just as there is nothing so heartbreaking in this fallen world as brothers treating one another with disdain or indifference, there is nothing so unfitting 
as seeing brethren in the church treat one another with loveless indifference. This is what I think he's getting at, is that this church here that he's writing to, this, this group of Jewish believers, they're, they're kind of going, is it worth it? And do I really need to be with other people? And I'm kind of just like, how can I avoid all this conflict and try to maybe serve Christ, but kind of go back to what's familiar and comfortable? Is, uh, what do I do? And he's saying, don't, don't pull away from the church. But the reality is, is that are, are we being the church? Because what is possible is that sin can creep into the church and instead of letting each of us going, I humbly submit myself to the Lord and let him choose how he wants to use me and understand that it's not all about me, it's about God's glory and his church. And yet if I will, if I will give myself to that church, he will allow the church to be one of the, the beautiful instruments of ministry to my own life and my own heart. That sometimes we don't do that. And so we come in and we can actually be one of the places where people have been harmed. And if that's your story, I'm so sorry. May it never be said, but his desire is that we would come together. And so the final question for us this morning then is how? If we're commanded here, let brotherly love continue. How do you and I let it continue? And I think a, a simple answer would be this. We fight against any attitude or action that impedes it. Now, there are several things that impede or stop or prevent us from showing brotherly love to one another. One pastor in an article listed five, but acknowledged there was probably 500 different things that we could say get in the way of you and I saying, I'm gonna love you with this brotherly love. I'm gonna put this friendship love out. I'm gonna draw near to you and I'm gonna let the Lord develop a bond between us that is actually going to make us desire to appreciate one another and serve one another. He gave five. Isolation is something that impedes it. Brotherly love is hampered when we are inconsistent in our fellowship with other believers. Kind of, we look at fellowship with the church and coming together to show brotherly love as a matter of when it's convenient or optional rather than saying, no, this is something I'm called to. Disengagement. Sometimes we, we come, but we're really on the fringes. This is true of my life early on as a young adult where I'd come to church and I was really content to kind of just sit and not really get to know anybody. Maybe say, kind of give the head nod of acknowledgement to a few people I knew. But I was more of a wallflower than a participator. I was present, but on the fringes. And that disengagement prevents me from actually receiving brotherly love, but being used by God to show others brotherly love. Superficiality is another thing that can hamper that. When we come to church, we gather with other believers, but we just kind of keep it on the surface level. We don't actually go deep. We don't actually ask the questions. We don't take time to listen. We just, we just talk about ourselves. And sometimes we, we can claim that I'm in these relationships and with, yeah, there's, there's this trust and this is genuine, but it's really a fake trust it's to trust that, hey, are we on the same page? It's that unspoken trust that says, I'm not gonna call you out in your sin. You're not gonna call me out on sin, but everything's gonna be okay. Right, it's on the surface. We don't go deeper. That works against brotherly love. Unresolved conflict. We're like, you know, I'm just gonna try to, there's just too many people that are bothering me or I just, this thing happened and, and I just, I can't be around them. And so I'm gonna find a different place to go or maybe not wanna, pursue resolution. 
And sometimes we even justify kind of avoiding conflict and going, no, I'm just going to take the high road. I don't want to really deal with that. Or I don't want to bring this up that something that's causing the conflict because who am I to judge them? Or I don't want them to get mad at me. But do you know that when we avoid resolving conflict, we're actually not serving anyone else besides ourselves? We can justify it all we want, but really we're saying, I don't want to go through this. I don't want to do the hard work. I don't want to be vulnerable to have to take some of the blame. So what are the reasons and the ways that I can excuse this away and sweep it under the rug? In our culture today, the easy thing is just pull the ripcord, find another place to worship, find another group to, to fellowship with. But that's not what brotherly love is. Again, brotherly love is developed when we sit and we work and we wrestle. Why? Because we're a family. And then the fifth one he gives is gossip. I love how he said it in the article. He said, this is instead of speaking the truth in love, gossipers speak lies and pride. And these five things work against brotherly love. So how do we let brotherly love continue? How do we obey Hebrews 13.1? We need to be the catalyst. We need to be part of letting it continue in us and through us. So what do we do? We got to remove, if any of these five things are in our life, we got to remove them. But what I've learned about the Christian faith as I've pursued Christ is that our life isn't just about resisting bad things. It's about replacing them with God honoring things. And so instead of trying, I'm going to try not to isolate. I'm going to try not to disengage. I'm going to try to not be superficial. Well, I think that how you do that is actually by replacing it with things that are what God calls us to do. I've read this quote before by Charles Spurgeon and I just love it because of, of a phrase in it, but he, listen to what it says. Give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect. And I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church till I found one that was perfect, I would have never joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it for it would not have been perfect church after I had become a member of it. But listen to this next statement. Still, as imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. All who have first given themselves to the Lord should as speedily as possible also give themselves to the Lord's people. How else is there to be a church on the earth? If it is right for everyone to refrain from membership in the church, it is right for everyone. And then the testimony of God would be lost to the world. How do we let brotherly love continue? We give ourselves to the church. We be the church. We don't just go to church. We are the church. And so what does that mean? What it means we gather. We, we come around each other both on Sundays, but outside. We, we come together regularly to get to know one another and to be known so that we can pray for one another and be prayed for. And even though that can be awkward and challenging and, and we lean into that because when we let brotherly love continue, God is glorified. We are sanctified. And the world is notified of what only God can do. When we give ourselves to church, we gather, but we also go, we serve together and with each other because the reality is brotherly love is a hallmark of enduring faith. This is what the whole letter has been for us to inspire us to have finishing faith, enduring faith, maturing faith. When it gets hard to follow Christ, when it doesn't make sense, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. 
And when you're like, okay, but what does that look like practically? He's given us a very practical first step. Give yourself to the church. Let brotherly love continue. Let God produce it in you. Let it develop in you. Let him, let him draw us together. Let him develop in us an appreciation for one another. Let him allow others to skillfully through the power of the Holy Spirit come alongside and be used by God to help us grow in our affection for God. That's our desire, that we would be a church that stands out, not because of who we are or what we produce, but because the brotherly love that people experience is marked, that the Spirit of God is at work in the people of Salem Heights Church. So how will you let brotherly love continue? Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for the invitation into your family the Bible talks about how at one time we were all outsiders. We were, we were people that because of our sin and rebellion, we're not close to you, God. And yet you pursued us because of your great love for us, that agape love. But there's something in that agape that also was, we see in, in the phileo love that you, that there was something in you that, desi- that drew you to us, God. And, and you've pursued us so lovingly, so graciously. And so God, I just pray that we would be faithful, that we would pursue you and that we would lean into your church and let your church be an instrument by which we are drawn together to serve you faithfully and to finish the race you've laid before us. God, if there are people here this morning who've experienced hurt from the church, who've been harmed by the church, God, I pray that you would bring around other believers who could come alongside and help restore them gently, help to love them and to sympathize with them and to help them through that. God, if there have been people who have caused harm, that they would confess that and repent, that they would go to their brothers and sisters and say, I I desire to have brotherly love restored. Would you forgive me? And for those who are new or those who maybe have been kind of on the fringes, God, would they see that this church is not just something to serve them, but it's something they're being invited to participate in. And that as you continue to build the mosaic of this church, God, it will do an amazing work in us, but ultimately it will be for your glorifying good. So God, we pray that you would do that in our church and that we'd finish the race well. We pray this in your son's name, amen.